Just to warn those of you of a sensitive disposition, this episode contains some discussion of historical place names. And historical place names can be surprisingly sweary. Trust me, you'll see what I mean in a minute. This is Accentricity, a podcast where I examine the eccentricities of language and identity. So as well as making Accentricity this year, I've also been teaching sociolinguistics at Glasgow Uni. It's been a busy year, but it's been pretty great too. And one of the things I've really loved has been meeting some of the linguists of the future. What you're about to hear is a bonus episode featuring some of the amazing people I've taught this year. Some are people who are new to linguistics and some are now pretty seasoned researchers who are about to start PhDs. This is the first of two parts. So here you'll hear from six students and then next week I'll be putting out another episode when you'll hear from another five of them. I won't be introducing the students within the episode audio, you'll just be hearing the purest and most glorious linguistics chat, but if you go to the episode descriptions you'll find a list of the speakers in order of appearance. So without further ado, let me present the students of English Language and Linguistics at the University of Glasgow in The Best Thing I've Learned About Language, Part 1. So um, what I found most interesting about language, which actually I don't know if it was yourself or Jen might have took the lecture, was um, how children picked up variation in their language. I think that was Jen, Was it Jen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, I found that absolutely uh, fascinating. So, you know, children have a massive task learning how to, to speak and then they have this added layer of variation going on and how they pick that up and I just found that was like super interesting. So variation as in like we all like there are lots of things that are more than one way of saying yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you can say like in lots of parts of Scotland you can say house or you can say house. Yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so I found that really interesting especially because I have a nephew who is a toddler and my like my mum and my dad babysit him a lot and I see how they speak to him now he he's talking away and my mum had asked him I think it was like do you want to go out in the garden and he said I and my mum was like excuse me (laughs) I it's we don't say I and he said yes and I was like you know why why is he not allowed to say because obviously grown-ups do because grown-ups do so they he, probably say yeah it. and my dad he will say things like i know who his language is much more um he doesn't speak as properly to him as my mum does and i was asking mom so i was like why can't he say i and she's like because i'm teaching him how to speak properly <laughs> but my dad speaks to him less standard forms so he has two he, he's listening to two people speak to him mm. and he has to figure out you know when should he use the right and wrong word for something so that is really what I found super yeah. interesting yeah so I suppose when your mum's saying to him no don't say I say yes she th- I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess. So she thinks she's teaching him. Yeah. This is how we speak properly. Yeah. But what she's probably actually teaching him is, 
when you're speaking to a grown up and you're a child, you're, you're supposed sp- to say yes, yes, but when you're speaking to your peers, you might say aye. Yeah. Um, so she's teaching him that some people will tell you not to say aye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, I, I was like, just let him say aye if he wants to say aye. But my mum's like, don't start that, that <laughs> university malarkey in here. <laughs> <laughs> So last semester I did a a name studies course um, and I found particularly place names, including, you know, street names, field names, I found those to be absolutely fascinating because I didn't realise that they're almost just like linguistic archaeology in a way. Um, So just how they, you know, contain bits of language that is, you know, almost forgotten about in certain cases and the fact it can give you ideas... Um, for example, when I did field names, uh, because a lot of them can be found to contain um, Old Norse and Old Scandinavian, it gives you a really good idea as to knowing where Viking settlers were, quite precisely. Um, and just being able to see, you know, lots of old language that was in use um, and, you know, can still be seen in use today. I just, I found it absolutely amazing. I never thought it would be so interesting. <laughs> so is that just because other parts of language change faster than the names of things. I feel, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that is exactly it. So it's not something that changes. It's not like how our speech changes, you Mm. know, pretty much every year. Um, You can go to a certain field, you know, in, I don't know, Worcestershire, and it will contain a really specific bit of, you know, Old Norse, and it just wouldn't have been changed at all. I don't really know why it wouldn't have. I would have thought maybe farmers would come along and change it. But... uh, and it's also really interesting looking at um, road names. Um, we did this um, little bit on, um, are we allowed to swear in this? Yes. Uh, on the word uh, cunt uh-huh. and how it was used in loads of, loads of road names all throughout the UK. And you sort of just assume that that word is, you know, quite a recent thing. And it's actually, you know, as old as, you know, 1600s. And... Um, is used throughout everywhere, not like a specific dialect of, you know, I don't know, Cockney London. It's all over the place. And <laughs> So, because yeah. so, we probably wouldn't use it in a road name now. Yeah. So was it less rude? I think so. I think it was just... <laughs> it's quite horrible, actually. So um, the most common road name with it contained was Grope Cunt Lane. <laughs> and it was meant to be for... I think it was meant to be for where you'd go for prostitutes. <laughs> So, you know, it says the name on the box almost. (laughs) And and then I suppose, I'm just thinking now, with the names of places, with place names, I guess, um, I guess it gives us a chance to dig a little bit if we know what the place was, right? So is that kind of a key you can use sometimes to find out what yeah well you can you can sort of find out what was there maybe before there was a town Mm. um so obviously with glasgow it's originally meant green hollow so it must have just been a huge green dip you know with nothing you know just almost like a little bowl or something and um and yes it just gives you an idea as to what was there and like um you know certain endings can mean different things like woodland you know you could be in a big town and the ending of the word mean woodland i can't remember it from the top of my head um and you know i can just give you an idea as to what was there before as well so if you're quite imaginative you can imagine what was there before as well (laughs) um it's really probably semantics and the study of meaning and how we get meaning from words um, and the phenomenon that that really, that process actually is. 
um, because, and this is what we learned in first year, um, and before that, I was just going through language study, just kind of taking for granted the kind of unconscious process of understanding pretty much what words mean. Um, and then when you actually encounter um, the question of, well, how do words mean what they mean? Um, it kind of absolutely expands your mind and you're like, okay, what actually, what process actually is going on? Um, so if uh, we take an example, um, if we look at the word cup um, and it's written down and it's in the form that it's in, it's in C-U-P if we're looking at it in English. Um, and if an English speaker were to read that, they would obviously know what it meant. It would mean a vessel for holding liquid. But how do we come to know that? How do we come to be instilled with that knowledge of what it is? Um, and there's obviously been um, linguists thinking about how that process works throughout the years. Um, and really, the general consensus is that its meaning is socially constructed. So we've all been told what the word cup means, but there's nothing in that word to designate what it actually means. We're just kind of assigned uh, a meaning to it. And we can see how that process then works throughout different languages because, the you know, um, I don't know in Spanish the word for cup, but it would look completely different from the word in English. Um, and if an English speaker were to see the Spanish word, they wouldn't know what it meant. So it's also, meaning is also um, confined to the individual and the culture that they're in. And if we then expand that to not just simple words like cup, if we look at political discourse as well, like um, maybe if we look at quite a charged word like um, like feminism or something, that's when the study of meaning becomes much more complicated because you could look at a dictionary and you could get a simple definition of it, but everyone's interpretation of it is going to be different. Um, and applying the study of semantics, the study of meaning to political conversation, that's when the stakes become really high. Um, and then that's what, um, and then it, you know, uh, cultivates lots of different cultures and identities all across the world. So, and understanding that process is really fascinating. Yeah, I think, um, and I remember the first time I realized that dictionaries don't decide what things mean. Mm, yeah. Dictionaries just, the people who are writing dictionaries are finding out what Absolutely, things mean yeah. and recording mm -hmm. them. Because you sort of grow up in school anyway with this idea that the dictionary tells you the meaning of a word. Mm -hmm. But, and I think sometimes that's why people get so upset about meanings of words changing, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're like, but it's it's static. It's yep. in the dictionary, mm -hmm. but it's not static. Exactly. It's we decide and we can change the meanings of words. Like the word literally yeah. now, mm -hmm. like, yeah, the word literally has mm. come to kind of mean figuratively, yeah, right? absolutely, yeah. And we can do that mm -hmm. because yeah. it's a social contract. And if enough of us decide that that's what the word means, it does. Yeah. I know it's, it's mind blowing. Um, I know it's quite a, it's a very progressive, um, quite liberating idea that the mm. fact that meaning can change all the time. But also it's kind of, it's kind of scary, I think, as well. Um, and the fact that the very language you use is always changing. It's always, it's always um, developing throughout time. Um, like the word, if you look at the word wicked as well, like that completely reversed its meaning. From so what, what it did it used yeah. to mean? It, well, it meant, it's like a biblical context in like 13th and 14th century, meaning like obviously damned and bad and you're going to hell and stuff like that. And then in the 1920s, it was adopted by um, the youth to mean great 
and stuff like that. Um, and now people would use it, you know, to obviously mean that meaning. So it's completely okay. reversed. It's mean, yeah, it was wicked. Um, and you can see that across, you know, loads of different words. And um, and really, when that's why it's so important to to know exactly what you're saying and um, and the position that you're in, because words are just have so much power, but they're also so malleable and changing all the time. We listen to to persons speak, and we can immediately tell where they're from, their gender, um, their their social background. So this is what what I'm most interested in, and I'm also because um, I'm yeah most interested in in speech sounds. Um, um, that's why I'm doing my uh, thesis in in uh, sociophonetics. So mm. yeah. So sociophonetics, like the way. The way that the sounds of our speech connect to things like who we are, mm, to our social background, yeah. Mm. So where we come from, uh, our gender, social class, things like that. Yeah. yeah, I think um, I think one of the things that's really interesting is I think we often we often can hear someone speak and we can say, okay, I know who that person is, I know mm -hmm. where they're from, I know their gender, but um, we, ha we it's more rare for us to know exactly what we're responding to like why we know that and yeah. what it is in their speech that yeah. we're picking up on yeah um and i guess that's why we sort of sometimes have to go under the microscope a little bit and yeah, right. look really closely yeah. at people's speech yeah. has there been anything anything in particular anything specific that you've learned about or, or sort of found in your research that surprised you that way, like sort of the details that people are picking up on in speech. Yeah, for example, so I'm looking at S, so the S sound in uh, words like seed, mm. said, um, and people, so research has shown that um, people um, use S to to index to show their, express their social background. Mm. And um, so for example, um, a study by Jane Stewart-Smith, who's a professor here at University of Glasgow, uh, she found that um, female, uh, young female working class girls actually produce S more similar to um, uh, male speakers, which is interesting because in general you you, you would think because um, you can differentiate S in terms of its acoustics and uh, generally female speakers have higher frequency S so they're like the um, energy uh, is more concentrated in the higher frequencies mm -hmm. for, for S and particularly for for um, for female speakers. So it was interesting that um, female speakers actually um, produced an S similar to to male speakers. Um, so I think when I started, I mean, you're. I hope every person is aware that depending on what region you are, you speak a different language, no matter what, if it's in Germany or in, in, in the UK, um, France, wherever. But when I started social linguistics, um, I came across this thing called accommodation theory. So basically, this one tells you that um, you either shift towards the speech of your interlocutor, so the person you speak to, or you shift away depending on the situation or your attitude toward that person. So um, it can be either, so there are two concepts. One is convergence and one is divergence. And convergence um, describes how you move towards the speech of your interlocutor. Maybe vocabulary, pronunciation, um, 
everything basically um and that depends on how attracted you are to that person or how fascinated you actually can be of that person um or also a sense of belonging so um i remember when i was a teenager about 14 13 14 um, I had a very good friend of mine and she used an equivalent to dude in English and I hated that, I really really hated that but I used it anyways I wasn't even aware of it, I just did, I couldn't stop it and now that I know that there is such thing as okay I just want to probably belong to the group or I liked her a lot because I was very shy and she was very outgoing and the popular girl so I tried to copy her in a, in a certain way. It's interesting how much that can be subconscious as well yes, right? Yes, so, um, I mean I was sort of aware of it but I, I just couldn't stop it just yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah. So I think the most interesting thing I learned this year was well was actually to put aside my prescriptive grammar side um, I guess Growing up, I lived in Canada for two years, so I moved there when I was 16, and everybody complimented me at the end of the year that I didn't have an accent, or, I mean, that I have a very, like, soft accent, and to me, that was, like, a super big thing, and when the other Brazilian kids spoke, I was like, I can hear your accent, <laughs> it was so bad, and... Once we started linguistics and then suddenly it was like, I never thought of it that way, that, yeah, well, I should be proud to have an accent that carries my story and where I come from. And you, it was just really nice to, to have this insight that how I sound is actually a very cool and original thing. And it tells a story that is not just mine. So it was interesting to have that side and to it change my mind it's always good to change your mind i guess thanks so much to sinead callahan ryan shaw hawkins mitchell mckee nicholas Tealking, vanessa rust and isadora bueno thanks also to my most excellent colleagues in english language and linguistics who have made me feel so welcome and supported this year and whose teaching work is extensively referenced in this episode. More from me and more from some more of the students next week.